Well, I invite you for just a moment to turn to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31. For the last couple of months, uh, Pastor Shane has been preaching a series of messages on the New Covenant found in this section in Jeremiah 30 and 31, uh, which I encourage, encourage any of you that not been here for those uh, six messages to take the time to listen to them and to really take in uh, what is uh, said here. The, the implications are staggering. But specifically, thinking about last week, And what Shane pointed out concerning the importance of repentance and how these attitudes of humility and brokenness play into God's dealings with the nation of Israel as well as his work in our own lives as God's people. I want to call your attention back to verse 18 of chapter 31. says, Thus Thus says the Lord, I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined. Like an untrained calf, bring me back that I may be restored. Or as Shane explained to us, it's very helpful. Literally, it's turn me so that I will turn. Uh, We know that we need to turn, but there's this sense of Desperation. There's this sense of dependency that says, I need to turn to the Lord, but I need him to turn me before I turn to him because just really recognizing, I guess, our, our inability uh, to even do that without God's help. And then he ends with this, for you are the Lord, my God. It's a very insightful, very instructive statement. And notice, you notice the scene and so, or sort of the imagery here. E- Ephraim, which is a reference to the northern tribes of Israel, is grieving. Uh, They are grieving with humility. They are grieving over the fact that they have sinned, uh, finally recognizing their need for the Lord to move them to repentance and forgiveness. And this is what they're saying. You, Lord, have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like a calf, which is a term to describe an adolescent, a, or you might say a weaned or nearly mature calf or bull, and in this case, an untrained calf or bull, one that has not been disciplined, one that has not been chastened to the point of being brought under control. This was the uniform complaint against Israel. All the way back in Exodus chapter 32, from the very beginning, right after their deliverance from Egypt, verse 9 says, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, speaking about the time, all the way up through the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivities, says uh, this, and the people here are crying out to the Lord in confession, and in verse 29 They say, and you, Lord, warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Even in the New Testament, In the New Testament era and in the early days of the church, when Stephen 
preached and testified before that ruling council in Israel, the Sanhedrin, in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, he said this, he said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Uh, Which was so difficult for that council to hear and, and their hearts were so proud that they did the unthinkable and yet validated Stephen's point by their response. The text says that they were enraged, that they ground their teeth at him, that they cried with a loud voice, they stopped their ears, they rushed together at him with one mind, as one great mob, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him to death. By and large, this is Israel's track record. Of course, God is going to do a new thing in Israel, and Jeremiah is making that case, but up to this moment, they have been undisciplined, stubborn, bullheaded. And this morning, I I want to, in a way kind of continue in that same vein as last Sunday's sermon, but I want to do this by looking at a proverb. Uh, Not the one that Shane mentioned at the end of verse 22 about a woman encircling a man. I don't have much to add to what he said about that particular phrase, for those of you who were here. Uh, But I do want to spend some time in Proverbs chapter 29. Proverbs 29, which is the final chapter of Proverbs collected and copied by the men of Hezekiah, according to Proverbs 25, verse 1. And like the other chapters in this collection, chapter 29 intertwines reflections on leadership and rule and public character with general sayings about moral life. And in the first half of chapter 29 in particular, From verse 1 to verse 16, we read about cycles of thriving righteousness and wickedness. That is to say, we have for us all throughout these verses a contrast between the righteous and the wicked, or between wise living and foolish living. Although we need need to be careful, I think that we don't assume that what Solomon is saying by this is that there are some people who are simply good and some who are simply bad. Uh, That is not the distinction being made here or really anywhere in Proverbs. The distinction is between those who respond positively to wisdom's guidance and instruction, correction, and restraint, and those who do not. So that is the sort of the broader context of chapter 29, but within that framework, we begin with verse 1, which will be the focus of our attention this morning. And this is the wisdom of God given to Solomon. Proverbs 29.1 from the ESV, he who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. What a summary of Israel's experience and history. But what a profound truth for us today. What a a fundamental reality of life. 
And what a warning about the way we respond to the truth and to correction and the consequences of not responding well. So, so what I want to do is, is break this, this proverb, this statement down, and kind of walk through what I believe this verse teaches us about the elements involved in the ruin of a rebel. The elements involved in the ruin of a rebel, and there are five of them, five of these elements, and we'll see them as we move along. So first, let's consider the person in view. The person in view. The ESV says, he who is often reproved. Uh, the, the term is the word for man, or ish in Hebrew, and it's used regularly throughout this chapter, 11, 11 of these 27 verses. We find this term. So, so this concerns a man, but for all practical purposes, you could say a person. And this is no ordinary person. This is an individual who is clearly not doing right. Now, how do we know that? We know that because he's being reproved. Okay, so, so things, things are not right in this person's life. Ob- obviously, not right from a biblical standpoint. So we're not talking about the way the world defines right and wrong. We're talking about from God's perspective, this man is not right. This is the kind of person that this proverb is, is speaking of. And, and so he's not right, and it could be for a lot of different reasons. In fact, sometimes it's kind of nice that the Scriptures don't give us the specific reason why this man isn't right, so that we don't say, well, this passage doesn't really apply to me, right? And so he doesn't really get into the details of that. It's a very, very general statement, but it could be for lots of different reasons. You think about the kind of righteous living that Proverbs calls us to, or on the other side of the coin, the kind of foolish living that Proverbs often describes and warns us about. You just sort of think through those, especially those early chapters of Proverbs. You have things like sexual immorality. Uh, you have uh, time and time again the issue of slothfulness and laziness and a lack of, of, of prudence and planning. You have various forms of sinful speech, such as slander or bearing false witness. Uh, You have this uh, issue of having associations with those sort of wicked and and foolish individuals to the extent that in our lives it begins to affect our judgment and our decisions. Uh, You have a a mention of of sowing discord among brothers and causing divisions that are unnecessary. You have a taking advantage at times of the weak and the vulnerable. Proverbs talks about the the, the danger of trusting in riches. All of those things Proverbs talks about. Those are just a a select few. So this verse is about a person who is not walking in the way of wisdom, not living in the fear of the Lord, not trusting God with their life, but pursuing their own way. Or as one proverb says, leaning on their own understanding. So we're introduced to an individual who is not right with God and not right with others. A person that is not uh, keeping that commandment to love the Lord with all of our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now what do we find next? We find what I would 
refer to here as a process of correction, a process of correction. The next word in the original text further describes this person in view, and it's the term for reproof or reprimand. Uh, And it's in the plural form, and so it's reprimands or reproof. So it modifies this man. So we're talking about, you could, could, could say it's a man of reproofs. Now, it's not the first time that we encounter this word in Proverbs. It's actually found in 15 other places in this book. It's the, again, it's the idea of correction, uh, even chastening. Uh, and the reason, again, why the verse speaks of this one being often reproved is because of the use of that plural noun. So we have the, you might say, the repetition of it. That is to say, this isn't something that happens just one time. In fact, it usually occurs numerous times though we may not always recognize it for what it is. So it's not only true in this man's life, but we we know from our own personal experience that when the Lord chastens us, when the Lord reproves us and corrects us, it's not usually just one time, right? I mean, we can think of examples in our own experience of the Lord doing this time and time and time again. And so there is this repetition. And then there's the form of it, the form of this correction, which varies. That is to say, chastening comes to us in various ways. Sometimes it's an immediate event or circumstance, uh, an alarming illness, uh, a dangerous accident. Uh, Maybe it's the deterioration or even in some cases the death of a friend in wickedness. These are often the rod and reproofs intended to give wisdom. Oftentimes it's simply the sowing and the reaping principle, right? Reaping the fruit of what we have sown in foolishness. Sometimes God chastens us by the rod of men. We see this in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's the, it's the loss of privileges or rewards. And in some cases, it's simply the word. Simply the word, exposing our unbelief and sin. But in every case, it is God's mercy. Instructing, rebuking, reproving, disciplining us through words and actions, showing us our folly and calling us to turn to him, to bow to him, and to worship him alone. This is the process of correction. And then thirdly, we note this element, the progress of rejection, the progress of rejection, because the next term in the verse is a participle that also modifies this man of reproofs. And it's a compound term from the verb kasha, uh, which means to be hard or to make stiff, and the noun oref referring to the back of a person or the neck of a person. And much like the correction, this also doesn't happen all at one time. In fact, this man's obstinacy was not the original cause of the many corrections. His obstinacy obstinacy is the disposition revealed by him under all of those reproofs over the course of time. That is why the Holman Christian Standard, if you happen to have that translation, the Holman Bible translates the phrase as one who becomes stiff-necked. 
It's just trying to convey that, that idea that this is, some, this is there's, it's a progressive thing, something that escalates over time, whether that's days or months or years. You see, at first the teaching came to him, but he wouldn't heed the truth. And then came the correction, the admonitions, the warnings, the rebukes, but he, but he wouldn't listen and change. And then there were threats of punishment and threats of restraint, but that didn't matter to him. He is a stubborn ox that would not bend its neck for the yoke, or a stubborn bull that would not yield to the training and the discipline. He is hardened. Even if he thinks he will make a change down the road when he's ready to make a change, he is deceived because the further he goes, the harder he becomes with every reproof. And that is what we see time and time again in the scriptures. Kasha, hardening, stiffening. It's the same term used in Exodus thirteen fifteen to refer to Pharaoh hardening his heart about letting the children of Israel go. And there are other examples of people in the Bible that had multiple opportunities but would not bend the neck. You remember Eli's sons in 1 Samuel chapter 2. They were priests before the Lord, but the scriptures tell us that they were worthless men. And then the scriptures describe for us their greed and their immorality. 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 22 says, Now Eli was very old. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man... God will mediate for him, but if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And that's exactly what played out. King Zedekiah in Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 11 says Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God, and he did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. And he stiffened his neck, and he hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that, they, that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. 
goes on there in verse 17, Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young men or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princess, all all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all of its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Zedekiah actually, when the city was under siege, attempted to escape, uh, but he was captured. He was brought before Nebuchadnezzar, it says, in Riblah, where Zedekiah witnessed the death of his own sons, and then his eyes were put out, and then he was bound with fetters and carried off to Babylon. But Jeremiah had had warned Zedekiah that he would see Nebuchadnezzar. He had already told him this. He warned him that he would go before Nebuchadnezzar, and yet we also have a statement from Ezekiel, the prophet, who said that Zedekiah would not see Babylon. And interestingly, both of those prophecies were fulfilled accurately because Zedekiah did actually see Nebuchadnezzar face to face, but then he was blinded before he was deported. So in that sense, he didn't see Babylon. And this is how it unfolds. The stiffening of the neck, the hardening of the heart. And there will will always be people, there will always be those who will tell you not to worry about this. That this isn't a big deal. That there's plenty of time to decide. In fact, Jeremiah 14 speaks to that. Even prophets, he talks about prophets, false prophets, of course, that, that tried to convince the people that they would see peace and not famine, nor the sword. But the people did see judgment. Why did they see judgment? Because they spurned reproof. Because they ignored the warnings. Time and time again. Like this man in Proverbs 29. They rejected correction. And over time reached a treacherous place. And this is our fourth element. The point of of disintegration, the point of disintegration. You might even say the point of destruction. The verse says this man will suddenly be broken. Now, we would expect the idea of him being stiff-necked to be in contrast with the idea of him being broken, but that's not the case because this brokenness doesn't speak about his repentance and humility. On the contrary, it's about his being shattered like a clay jar. The King James Version says this, he shall suddenly be destroyed. And we note the suddenness of 
this calamity suddenly or instantly, or some translations say in an instant. Uh, Actually, it has the idea of opening one's eyes. Uh, It's like a wink. That quick, he's broken. And the term for broken is shaobar. It means to burst or to break. Literally, it means to break something into pieces, like an earthen vessel, or, or like the shattering of the bone of an animal, or a ship broken apart by rough winds and waves. This man is destroyed. He is, he is mauled. He is, he is crushed. We also note the permanence of this terrifying judgment. He isn't just broken, he is broken beyond healing. The New American Standard says beyond remedy. The Holman Bible says beyond recovery. It's literally no health. That's what what the phrase means, no health, no healing. Now, according to Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6, an open rebuke is a wound, but it's one that's given to prevent something worse. But in this verse, in Proverbs 29, we're beyond that place, right? We're at the point of the something much worse. The idea here is that there is no cure, Spiritually speaking, this man has a problem that is now incurable and terminal. It will take his life. Uh, This thing is not going to get better. Uh, This situation will not turn around. There will be no restoration. There will be no rebuilding. And the sad thing is, he won't care. And he still won't want to repent. When this time comes, this point of rejection, he won't even know where he truly stands. That's a frightening thing to think about. And yet I've seen it many, many times in counseling through the years. A person who is not responsive to correction and over time they simply become more and more recalcitrant. They become more and more uncooperative. They have this fatal flaw of incorrigibility. What ought to be beneficial in its effects is fatal for them. William McCain, in his commentary on the Proverbs, writes this. He said, he says, quote, It hardens him in his willfulness and wrongheadedness. A point in this process is reached when his own blind stubbornness will break him to pieces, and this will be the end. This is a moment of disintegration from whose effects there is no cure. The pieces of life cannot be gathered up again, and the wholeness of his life is no longer a realizable possibility. He has willed his own destruction." End quote. McCain later refers to this whole process as beginning with a proud attitude that leads to a form of spirit, he calls it spiritual sclerosis, a spiritual hardening that will culminate, if not dealt with, 
it will culminate with this spiritual and often physical disintegration. Like a storm or a whirlwind, judgment arrives suddenly and with a finality to it. Uh, Turn back just for a moment to Proverbs chapter 1. Again, this is a a very concise way, Proverbs 29.1, of this principle. But again, it's not the first time that we have these kinds of warnings. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will you scoffers delight in their scoffering and scoffing and fools hate knowledge. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I have called and you refused. And this is the contrast because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. Verse 26, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices, for the simple are killed by their, their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. It's all there. Flip over to Proverbs chapter 6, verse 12. Proverbs 6, verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. It's the same wording, same wording as in chapter 29. This point of disintegration. So where's the hope? Where's the hope? Well, the hope is not explicitly mentioned in Proverbs 29, verse 1, but it's there. And it's the patience of God. The patience of God. A.W. Pink described God's patience as, quote, that power of control which God exercises over himself, causing him to bear with the wicked and forbear so long in punishing them. The Bible tells us over and over and over again, God is patient. God suffers long. He is patient with sinners in forestalling judgment upon sin. Again, in the Old Testament, in Exodus, after God gave the Decalogue at Mount Sinai, Moses came down from the mountain and found the people already breaking the first commandment. And in Exodus 34, the Lord commissioned Moses to take two new tablets so that he could write the Ten Commandments on them again. And Moses went up to to Mount Sinai again for the Lord to do this. But before the Lord did so, he revealed himself 
to be long-suffering. Verse 5 of Exodus 34, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we find that very same affirmation in Numbers chapter 14, verse 18. We find it in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17, as the people confessed their sin. This is after the Babylonian captivity. When those who returned back to to the land, they were recounting the failures of previous generations as well as the long-suffering nature of God. It's affirmed by David in his prayer in Psalm 86, verse 15. It's in Psalm 103, verse 8, and in Psalm 145, verse 8, as well as in Joel chapter 2, verse 13. In the book of Jonah, you remember Jonah preaching to the people of Nineveh and warning them that judgment was coming in 40 days. And God gave them opportunity to heed the word and to repent. Why? Because our God is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Which Jonah knew to be true, and that's exactly why he got angry. It's exactly why he hesitated to preach to Nineveh. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, it's God's patience. Patience that is on display in the parable of the unmerciful servant by the king in that story in Matthew 18. In Pauline literature, God's long suffering is frequently mentioned and sometimes, as it is in Proverbs 29, described in relationship to his judgment and wrath. Romans chapter 1, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It goes on there in chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on, on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And this is so critical. Verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that, the, that, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? Repentance. But, verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
God is so patient. And why does God do it? Why does God exercise patience? Well, in some cases, as we've seen, the reason that God is long-suffering towards sinners is to provide them an opportunity to repent and turn to God. But when God does withhold punishment, people have to be careful not to mistake the delay. At other times, the Lord forbears judgment on sinners so that when it does actually fall, it will be abundantly clear that it is deserved. There'll be no question. Sometimes God simply is patient and doesn't judge immediately because he wants it to be known to everyone that this, when it happens, when the judgment comes, it's, it's it not, not because of any inequity on God's part. And in other cases, God's purpose in withholding judgment upon the unrepentant is to show those he does save, who, by the way, equally deserve such judgment when judged on their own merits alone, but he wants to show his redeemed how incredibly merciful he is to them. And in doing so, he shows himself to be patient with his elect. And interestingly, God will sometimes show patience to one person to demonstrate to another person that they are not beyond hope. For example, God was patient with the Apostle Paul not merely to give him an opportunity to repent and to believe in Christ, but doing this and then using Paul as a mighty spokesman for the gospel in order to offer Paul as a prime example of divine patience. So Paul draws this out, this, this reality out in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That is to say, any who think that they have remained in sin too long, or any that that think that they have strayed from God too far for God to ever save them, need only to reflect on the example of the Apostle Paul. God is long-suffering. He is not quick-tempered. He is not quick-triggered. He does not fly off the handle. Rather, he is slow to exercise his righteous anger. Commenting on Nahum chapter three verse or chapter one verse three that reads, "The Lord is slow to anger," and interesting, it says he is slow to anger and great in power. Stephen Charnock, the Puritan, in his work, The Existence and Attributes of God, says this. He says, Men that are great in the world are quick in passion and are not so ready to forgive an injury or bear with an offender as one of a meaner rank. It is a want of power over that man's self that makes him do unbecoming things upon a provocation. A prince... That can bridle his passions is a king over himself as well as over his subjects. God is slow to anger because 
God is great in power. He has no less power over himself than over his creatures. Time and time again, God has shown patience. In Noah's day, when mankind was universally degenerate, God did not destroy them until he had forewarned them. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 makes mention of that time when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. God waited for years during which time Noah was a preacher of righteousness. God waited to bring judgment. And from the earliest days of Israel's history, God exercised and manifested his patience toward them. Right after their deliverance from slavery in Egypt, they rebelled against him. Acts chapter 13 verse 18 summarizes that time with this statement. And for about 40 years, God put up with them in the wilderness. What about the Gentile nations? The nations in general who worship and serve the creature more than the creator, according to Romans 1... Romans tells us their iniquity is overflowing. And yet, instead of drawing his sword to exterminate them all, Acts 14, verses 16 and 17 tell us that God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, and he did good to them and gave them rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying their hearts with food and gladness. What about the world today? People are sinning on every side. Sinning with a high hand, trampling God's word, mocking his son and the bride of Christ. Why doesn't God strike them dead? Why doesn't God open up the earth and swallow them whole? Because he's long-suffering. In spite of all the idolatry, The blasphemy, the profanity, the impurity and uncleanness, the oppression of man by man, and the oppression and cruelty of man to man. In a sermon delivered in 1886 by Charles Spurgeon, entitled God's Long-Suffering and Appeal to the Conscience, Spurgeon states, I love the way he writes, he says, How doth the all-merciful bear it? Methinks... The sword of the Lord must often rattle in its scabbard, and he must force it down and say, Sword of the Lord, rest and be quiet. I will not go further because the list is endless. The wonder is that a gracious God should continue to bear all of this. Think of the sin involved in false teaching. I stood one day at the foot of Pilate's staircase in Rome and saw the poor creatures go up and down on their knees on what they are taught was the very staircase on which the Lord Jesus Christ stood before Pilate. I noticed sundry priests looking on, and I felt morally certain that they knew it to be an imposter. I thought that if the Lord would lend me his thunderbolts about five minutes... I would make a wonderful clearance thereabouts. But he did nothing of the kind. God is not in haste as we are. 
Sometimes it does suggest itself to a hot spirit to wish for speedy dealing with iniquity. But the Lord is patient and pitiful. He shows pity. God is slow to anger, graciously allowing time for repentance and change. And although God will not be mocked with false repentance, he does not meet our every failure immediately with its due consequence. Whether we are believers or unbelievers, that is true. God acts, yes, but only when it is right and good to do so, and a time when he sees fit. But until then, he displays his power through the restraint of his loving patience. It's a, it's a humbling reality. And it's not meant to make you comfortable and complacent. It's meant to change you and to bring you under his lordship. That is what Proverbs 29.1 is telling us. Don't make the mistake of misinterpreting God's patience to mean that he ignores or condones your sin. And don't be so bullheaded. Even if you're a believer, don't be a hard case. Don't be a hard case. Psalm 32, verse 8, says this. is the Lord speaking in verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. The next verse, he says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. Different animals, same problem. Incorrigibility. Listen, some of you are here this morning, perhaps you're a young person, maybe a graduate, and you've been exploring some avenue of sin in your life, testing the waters. Or perhaps you're here and your marriage is in turmoil. You're thinking about giving in, giving up, throwing in the towel, abandoning your covenant. Proverbs 29 says this, the grass is not greener on the other side. It's not. Whatever your situation, you may be here today and you find yourself at an intersection, at the proverbial fork in the road. Maybe you've been involved in some sin in the past. You've had some level of victory in your life, but the pressure is mounting, and you're thinking about going back to your old ways. Don't do it. The Lord loves you. He is good. He is patient. But do not forget about the severity of God. God's patience has its end. God will not be mocked. 
Some of you keep failing in some area of your life. You've convinced yourself, though, that, that, you, that you can't do anything about it. But the truth is, you're not really willing to fight it. You, you, you act as if you're helpless or if, as if you've tried everything. People say that all the time. They say, well, Joel, I've, I've, I've tried that. I always follow that up with, how? Tell me how you've tried that. And normally what you find is that they've made an effort, one, once or twice, three times maybe, They claim that they've tried, but they're not really fighting sin. It's easy to fall into patterns of training our sin rather than killing it. I recently heard this quote from Desiring God Ministries. If you only pray about your pet sin after you've done it again, you're training your sin, not killing it. That's the only time you pray about your pet sin is after you've already done it, over Rather than praying in advance for God to give you victory through it, right? You're just training it. So regardless of who you are, regardless of why you're here this morning or what brought you to this place, listen to the wisdom of God through King Solomon. If you don't know the Lord... Is not the Spirit of grace pleading with your heart? Would he not save you if you obey his call? Yes, he would. You are standing on mercy's ground between heaven and hell. Would you acknowledge your sinful condition and your need for forgiveness? Would you repent and trust in Jesus? Before you stand before God with no advocate, no one pleading for you, without remedy? That is our prayer for you and our appeal to you today, that you would cry out to the Lord and say, as Ephraim will one day say, God, turn me so that I may turn to you. Change my heart. Make me new. And if you are a child of God, don't rush past this gracious word. Trust in the Lord. Yield your life to his truth and walk humbly with your God. Please stand. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your patience. How often we have strayed from your commandments and how often you have shown mercy. And may we never take it for granted. Spirit, would you call sinners to the Father through Christ? And Spirit, would you work in your people and give all of us ears to hear and hearts to believe and to obey. In Christ's name, amen.